Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. We're so glad that you've joined us here online for Coastal Community Church this morning. Big thank you to Hillary and Matt for incredible worship, as always, and just so grateful for both of them leading us this morning. Uh, stay tuned right after this at 10 a.m. on our Facebook page, which is at Coastal Community Church 1830. We are going to be having a live stream at 10 a.m., and I can't wait because at 10 a.m., uh, in our live stream, we're also going to do a crowdfunding for Change for a Dollar. So we are going to be asking you to either Venmo the church or to uh, PayPal the church, and we'll give you specific instructions about how to do that at 10 a.m. But we're so excited because we have multiple families that don't go to our church of people that really could use some financial help. And so we're super excited right after this service at 10 a.m. We're going to be on Facebook Live at Coastal Community Church 1830. That's what you type into Facebook and you'll find us there. So I want to give you a couple of encouraging words here. First, um, our care teams are up and running and working. We're delivering groceries. We're helping our older adults and those in our church who need help. Uh, so it's really incredible to watch. The deacons have been giving away money like crazy and that is really, really fun. Um, we've helped people with medical bills. We've helped people with paying for rent. We've helped uh, those who've lost their jobs put food on their table. And that's your story. You've done that uh, through your generosity, so thank you. Also, I want to thank you so much for your continued faithful giving to our church online. Uh, if you want to go to our website, that's mycoastal.org forward slash giving, and you can give safely and securely, all tax deductible online. This last week, uh, we did not see a dip in our regular giving because you were committed to give to us. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So I just want to encourage you. You guys have been the church in incredible ways. And as we're entering into our second uh, full week, or actually it would be our third full week tomorrow of an, a shelter-in-place order, I just want to encourage you. You guys have done an absolutely amazing job being the church, and we're going to be needed. Our neighbors, our families, our friends um, here in this church, they're going to need us, and so we're just so grateful for, for your faithfulness. So before we do anything else, I want to remind you who we are. We believe in three things. Number one, that there's hope beyond our brokenness, that you and I have a story of hope meaning our future is not defined by our fear. Our future is defined by what Jesus is doing in the present and in the future right now. Second, we believe that we're called to trust in our risen Savior. So you and I get to trust Jesus. We get to put the weight of our very lives into his capable hands, whether it's our finances or our job or our family or living cooped up with our family for weeks on end. We trust Him. We trust Him with our health, with our future, with our business, with our kids, with our grandkids. And third, we believe that we are called to bring restoration, that, that you and I have something good to do. And, and you've already been doing that this whole week. I mean, you're asking your neighbors if they need some toilet paper. You're giving to the church. You're giving to change for a dollar. You're, you're making sure that you are being a blessing everywhere you go, and that's what we're called to do as a church. So, how do we bring, how do we live out hope and trust and restoration? 
Well, those are choices that we make. And so we say this together every single Sunday, but I'm wondering if you might be able to say it with me now as, we're, as you're at home and I'm preaching to an empty room. But let's, let's repeat this together. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. So we're continuing in our sermon series, First and Second Samuel, uh, this morning. So today, David has, uh, he's, he's confronted with an incredible choice. And that choice is whether or not he's going to bring restoration or continue to do damage in his life and in his kingdom. And so today's passage is about confession. Now, um, David has, when three weeks ago, it felt like six months ago, when we talked about David and Bathsheba, David has sent for Bathsheba to use her, sent her away after getting her pregnant, sent for her husband to cover it up, and then sent him to his death after Uriah was too honorable to participate in David's shameful cover-up scheme. So instead of honoring his friend Uriah and his wife Bathsheba, instead of honoring the power of his position of king, instead of honoring his servants by giving them good work to do, instead of honoring God's generous provision in every area of his life with his own humble obedience to God's priorities and God's plan, what David does is that he uses his power to steal and take what he wants And it causes such incredible damage. It's the same kind of damage that would take King Saul out, that would end King Saul's reign. He kills instead of apologizing. He hides instead of repenting. And so today God is going to confront David. Now it's easy to think of confession as an ideal to shoot for, right? It's not. It's easy to think of confession as something that we can delay or do when we're ready. It's not. It's easy to think of confession as a one-time event. Yeah, I confessed my sins in 1975 when I was in Sunday school and now I'm a Christian. Mm, No, it's not how it works. It's easy to think about confession and assume that you've actually done something. And that's not how it works either. Confession is so essential to the Christian faith. You cannot separate confession from following Jesus any more than you can separate prayer from following Jesus. In fact, for all of us who claim to be Christians, the moment that we truly understood confession, the moment that we actually confessed, that's the moment that Jesus entered into our hearts and saved us and forgave us. So this morning's text is as important as the air that we breathe, and never more so than right now when we're stuck in the house with people who definitely need to confess their sins. In fact, even the idea of spending this much time with our family can be terrifying if confession is not a regular practice in your household. Because of coronavirus, you are going to be quarantined, but you have a choice. Do you A, quarantine with your wife and child, or B, B. those same people who need to confess um, they're really hoping that you would listen carefully today to today's passage in fact so many of them called me and asked me to preach this message just for you 
So before you pause the video and go do something else, we better pray uh, quick. Ready? Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, we need your help. Right now, uh, we need you, Holy Spirit, to protect our hearts, to protect this room. And so we bind up and silence anything opposed to Jesus that would be interfering with this time. God, we don't like being confronted, and today's text confronts us. And so would you please help lower our defenses right now? Would you please help us to apply this passage to our own lives? God, set us free and help us to be the kind of people that lead our families with repentance. So we need your help, Jesus. Bless us, protect us in this moment. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So would you read with me, or you can read along with me. Get out your Bibles. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And chapter 12 starts like this. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now you remember, I just kind of alluded to this previously, how that word sent was repeated over and over again in chapter 11. David sent for Bathsheba. David sent for Uriah. David then sent Uriah out with his death orders. And so the last time that the word sent is used is when God sends Nathan to confront David. And, and by the way, David's strategy of sort of sending for things and for people and sort of keeping distance from all of that is exactly what we do. Um, like David, we think that we can dabble in our sin without getting caught. We can sort of act in private and our little acts of rebellion won't get noticed. Well, I didn't do anything. I just sent for that thing. And, and of course, we love David's story because we can distance ourselves from his outrageous sin. Look, I didn't have an affair and kill the other guy, right? I didn't murder. So, so what we do is we say, well, here's this big, awful sin, but my little sins that I'm entertaining, they're not that bad. But what David never expects and what we never expect is that God is more than just watching. He's actually present here right next to us. And God is always going to use his power and his presence to confront us. Now, God steps in, but maybe in a way that you don't expect. So God sent Nathan, the prophet, to confront King David. Now, to be a prophet in Israel was to have a very specific job description. The prophet was the leader of Israel's worship, so he had kind of my job as pastor, but also the prophet was the press. And so the press always spoke truth to power. And so that was the prophet's job. And so Nathan shows up in Jerusalem, verse 1. He came to David and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. Now Nathan launches into an odd story. Why, this seems kind of weird. Um, there's no, hey, how's it going, David, or what's up? I'm sure they actually said that. Um, but Nathan is supposed to be calling David out, right? So why does he start with this odd story about two rich men in some city, one or two guys in some city, a rich man and a poor man? Well, this is actually a brilliant strategy. Nathan wants David to actually hear his words and to actually listen. See, you and I, when we get confronted by what we're doing wrong, the first reaction that we have is to put up our shield. And this is what we lead with, right? Hey, back off! Don't confront me! Now, we don't actually say that, but that's our response, 
right? So we kind of like put our, you know, we like, hey, look, it's not my fault. Look, I'm allowed to be mad. Or, look, he hurt me first. Hey, I'm just a little stressed. Look, it's not that big of a deal. Look, why are you confronting me when she's the problem? I've done this. You do this. This is what humanity does. And Nathan is wise. He doesn't want to just sort of rile all of David's demons all at once. So what he's going to do is he's going to tell a story so that David will actually hear the words. Now, Nathan tells a story that David is used to hearing. Nathan, as the prophet, would often bring legal cases to David because David, too, has a job description. He's a king, and a king does three things all at once. Number one, they're the political head of the nation. Number two, they're the military leader. But number three, they, fe- they function like a Supreme Court justice or a federal judge, right? And so David doesn't think it's unusual for Nathan to bring him a unique legal case. And David, as king and judge, is going to sit on his throne and make a pronouncement. And whatever legal pronouncement David makes is going to be the fate of whoever is guilty in this story, which David thinks is real. So Nathan continues, verse 2. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. So we learn that both the rich man and the poor man live in the same city, and the rich man has a lot of herds uh, of of lamb and and flocks, so he's got multiple different kinds of, of animals, which means that his portfolio is well diversified. And what does the poor man have? The poor man has one ewe lamb. A ewe is a female lamb or a female sheep. And so this poor man with his family has saved and saved and saved. It's probably took him years and they bought one little lamb. Now they wouldn't buy a male lamb because a male lamb doesn't have the ability to give birth to more sheep, right? Other lambs. But a female lamb growing up, this ewe lamb growing up, can then become a mother of an amazing flock. In fact, when you eat any kind of meat, you're not eating the female version of the chicken or cow or goat or lamb or whatever it is or the pig. You're eating the men uh, because they, all farmers keep the, the female uh, in order that their herds may continue and continue to grow. So verse 2, the poor man brought up this little ewe lamb and it grew up with him and with his children. And he used to eat of his mor- uh, the lamb used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. So basically the ewe lamb is like a family pet, right? They eat at the same table. This is such a picture of intimacy and care and love and kindness. Why? Because this little ewe lamb is the pride of this poor man's life. This little ewe lamb is both metaphorically and literally his financial future. So he doesn't want it to get sick. He doesn't want it to be damaged or hurt in any way. And so it becomes another one of his children. And as that ewe lamb grows up, so does the potential of this poor man's financial future. So literally the way out of poverty for this poor man is to protect this female sheep, have it grow and have it have lots of babies and then they'll finally be set. They'll be out of poverty. Verse four, you can see where this is going. Now there came a traveler to the rich man 
And he was, un so a friend or a family member, somebody in the rich man's rotary club or whatever. It's a, it's a, it's a buddy. He shows up. And he was unwilling, the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. Now, the rich man, he could have, he, he could have just offered the traveler, you know, a hearty bowl of vegetable soup and bread. You don't need to, like, slaughter an animal every time a traveler comes. Middle Eastern hospitality says feed the person, but you don't have to have this massive feast. Now, if you're rich, you can afford to do that. And this guy could have taken any flock, any chicken, any dove, any duck, whatever. He could have taken any animal of his own flock to prepare for his out-of-town guests. But what does he do? But the rich man took the poor man's lamb. The word took is steal. He stole the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. Yeah, that's messed up. The rich man has no problem destroying the poor man's financial future. The rich man has no problem destroying the poor man's heart and emotions and wrecking his family. The rich man has no problem destroying this poor man's honor. This poor man has one thing of value, and the rich man just takes it, steals it, kills it. Why? Well, the rich man thinks that he's better than the poor man. The rich man has no pity, no mercy, no compassion at all. It is cruel, cold, vicious, mean. It's, it's awful. And upon hearing the story, King David reacts. Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled. The word here in Hebrew is burned. Like David got hot, angry, furious. Why? Well, because David knows how the poor man feels. He was a shepherd once, and this is where Nathan's brilliance in telling this particular story really shines. David used to take care of little female ewe lambs. And if a rich man came and stole one of his prized little lambs because the rich man was too lazy and greedy to take as one of his own flock, how's David going to feel? David, that shepherd, is incensed. Now, what's tragic about this whole story right now in this present moment of this story is that David isn't angry at himself for having an affair. David does not burn with fury at himself for stealing Uriah's wife, destroying his friend's honor, and then murdering his friend and the other soldiers who were collateral damage in David's plot to kill Uriah. David is not furious at himself for any of that, but he's angry at a rich man who kills a lamb. See, part of what happens when you entertain sin in your own heart is that that sin is like hot iron that sears your own heart and creates calluses. You stop feeling the guilt and the outrage about your own sin. Now, 12 years ago when I was deep into my own alcoholism, if you had talked to me about how messed up or bad my own sin was regarding my own alcohol use, I would have scoffed and laughed at you. I would have said, there's nothing wrong with my drinking. I'm fine. And I would have had every excuse in the book to be mad, um, to not be mad at myself for how I drank. But if you had brought up to me... Um, what my dad's drinking was like and the damage that my dad's drinking had done, I would have been furious at that time about what my dad had done. Can you see it? I mean, just this last week, 
I'm hanging out with April and um, as a human being in the middle of a global pandemic, we get stressed, we get anxious. And so I was snippy. I was like, I was being a twit. And April called me out on it. She's like, Andy, you've been like a right twit all week long. And I was like, ah, no, I haven't. Bah, rah, 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 rah. Like I respond, like I reacted like horribly to even her calling me out. Right. But when she had a little moment of anxiousness, I was like, like I was calling. I was mad at what she was doing. But when she called me in, I was like, hey, back off. So, yeah, this is what we do. This is what we do. We get mad when others mess up. But when we but we don't have any emotion about our own rebellion, even though it's the same or worse. Can you see the irony, the blindness, the hypocrisy of my sin? Can you see the irony, the, the blindness, the hypocrisy of your own? So David speaks to Nathan. Verse 5, he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. <laughs> I love David. Here he sounds so ridiculous. First we're going to kill him, then we're going to make him pay. It's like, oh, David, I think you might have gotten the order mixed up there a little bit. Now, David is uh, the fourfold um, repayment. What is David, what is going on there? Well, this is actually biblical justice. In Exodus 22.1, uh, it says that when you steal someone else's item, you have to repay it fourfold. And this is both justice, that you would repair what, what you've stolen, but also there's a sense of punitive justice in it where um, the cost would be high enough for you to avoid sin, uh, to avoid ever stealing again, and that's justice. So if we just have biblical justice in this particular case, then the rich man is just going to give the poor man four new baby ewe lambs and all would be taken care of. But David doesn't stick with justice. He invokes God's name as the Lord lives and then he does something far beyond justice, moving way past the line of revenge and he says, this man deserves to die. Why does David say that? Well, it's in his last judgment of the rich man. He had no pity. Now, Americans hate the word pity unless your name is Mr. T. Mr. T, of course, did some incredible public service announcements, and I'd like to share one with you now. The name is Mr. T. First name is Mr. Middle name is that period. Last name is T. Listen and listen good. I'm talking to you. When a new kid moves in on your block, what's your attitude? Do you figure? What do we need him for? Well, I pity the fool that makes that mistake. The rest of us don't like the word pity. Uh, Mr. T likes the word pity. By the, by the way, the gold chains around his neck, 45 pounds worth of gold. Uh, the rest of us don't like the word pity. Why? Because, well, we, we, I mean, we rarely even use the word nowadays. O only in the phrase this, I don't need your pity. But the Hebrew word for pity here is the word hamal. And hamal means to have pity, to spare, or to have compassion. You see, David saw a rich man with no compassion, who did not spare the poor man 
from financial ruin, who chose to destroy something beautiful for a moment of pleasure, a meal. So David makes two judgments at once, justice for the poor man and death for the rich man. Now, it's not hard to understand why David is so angry. You might see this here. He's angry at himself, even though he can't let himself feel his own anger at what he's done. His pride is way too thick around his own heart to admit that he is the problem. Yet under that thick armor plating of pride in the middle of the night, I'm sure he prosecutes himself to no end. And, And this is what you and I do when we do not confess our sins. When you and I refuse to actually speak out loud what we've done wrong to God or to another person that we trust, what we are doing is that we are becoming the judge. We set ourselves up at judge as judge. And of course, the first thing that I do is that I say, it's okay, Andy, what you've done isn't too bad. You don't have to tell anybody about what you've done. So when I refuse to confess my sin to God or to another person, I default into the judge, and then I say, you know what, don't worry about it, you don't need to confess your sin. And I let myself off the hooks from my mistakes. Of course, I am then going to judge everybody else and make sure that their justice is swift, vicious, cold, and mean. But this is the cruel irony about when you become judge. When you become judge and sit on the judgment seat of your own heart, you will start judging everyone else as well. And here's the irony. You will also judge yourself. You know, you won't judge yourself with mercy. You'll judge yourself with cruelty. You'll wake yourself up in the middle of the night, berating yourself, condemning yourself, crushing yourself with what you've done wrong. But then, of course, we can't tell anybody what we've done. So we're terrified of our secret getting out. We're exhausted from judging ourselves. And so every day, if you don't confess sin, you will have to put on the heavy armor called self-justification and pride and venture out again into the world, insisting that you're right determined to prosecute others for their wrong, and at the same time condemned to judge yourself. And we can see it here in David's judgment of the rich man. He goes way overboard because he's really angry at himself. Can you see the irony, the blindness, the hypocrisy of our sin? Now, David, at this moment, he couldn't see any of it. And so Nathan helps him see. Verse 7. Nathan says to David, David, you are the man. I mean, he just hits King David with a sledgehammer. Dude, you're the rich man. David has just said, this rich guy, he deserves to die. He deserves to pay back the poor man. And Nathan says to him, You're the man. You're the rich man. And and Nathan, I mean, David is just like stunned. He's like, what? And Nathan is going to now explain what he means and why it is that David is the rich man. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Nathan 
immediately, he doesn't just like bring out like some small evidence. He just sort of wheels out the howitzer and points it straight at David. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Nathan is saying, David, God gave you everything, everything that you could never earn nor deserve. God has given you everything, and if you wanted more, you could have just asked. But your sin got you so twisted up that you thought that you had to take. Your sin blinded you to the generosity of God. And that's the first thing that Nathan is pointing out to David and to us. Sin blinds us to God. The moment that you and I lie or take or numb or give in to greed or envy or gossip or resentment, we're basically saying this, God, your gifts are not enough. And, and since I don't believe that you're good and that you'll actually provide for me, that you actually love me, that you'll actually take care of this person or this problem or this situation, I guess I have to step in and do it myself. And this blindness to God's goodness creates incredible damage. Why? How does it create damage? Well, our blindness to God's goodness then means that you and I become immunized against ever finding hope or healing or peace. When we're blind to God and His great love for us, then every solution that we create to deal with our pain or our problems or our relationships will always be the wrong solution because we've left God out of it. We said, God, well, you're not capable of handling this. I got to do it on my own. And therefore, every time we deal with the problem, we just make the problem worse. And so mercy's off the table, forgiveness is gone, love is scoffed at, confession, repentance, <clears throat> forget it, they're dismissed. And all that's left is anger and resentment and frustration, fury, condemnation, demands of perfection. I mean, the list of our stupid solutions just goes on and on and on. And then what we do is we take these horrible solutions and we apply it to ourselves or to the other people. And what does that do? Oh, man, it just makes the damage deeper. And then we, we think to ourselves, well, God, where are you? Well, like, why, why is this happening? And God's saying, well, you're blind to me. It, it, it's, like, it's like we're in a room with Jesus right by our side, and we're beating ourselves or other people up, and we're screaming with our eyes closed for Jesus. It's like, Jesus, show up! And every time he says, sweetheart, I'm right here, we're like, I can't hear you! Why don't you show up? It's, can you see the irony and the blindness and the damage of our sin. Well, Nathan keeps on going. Verse 9, Nathan says this, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And now he gets specific. You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonite. Nathan says, David, you're the rich man. Your heart was so twisted that you despise the word of the Lord. Oh, yeah, I know, David. You've written Psalm 40 and Psalm 112 where you say, I delight to do your will and your laws in my heart. But, David, it's all a lie. You hate God's word because the moment that you stole Uriah's wife, 
I mean, she was way more valuable than a little lamb. That's who you are right now, David. This poor man was your friend, and not only did you take the thing that God had given him to bless him, which was his bride, you then killed him. And David has no response. He's absolutely stunned, rocked, destroyed in silence. And now Nathan is going to judge David. But it's not the way that you think. Like, God doesn't come up with creative punishments for you and I. What God does is that he says, Sweetheart, do you really want to be the judge? See, at any moment, David could have confessed his sin. He could have just spoken the truth about what had happened to Uriah. He could have called Uriah home and said, you know what, I was up on the balcony and I totally looked at your wife in a lustful way and that was wrong and I'm so sorry. Or he could have said, Uriah, I had an affair with your wife and I'm so sorry. Or he could have said, I mean, he could have stopped this at any moment confessing his sin. And in that moment, he would have suffered the consequences of his actions, but the damage would have stopped. See, when we confess our sins, the damage stops and healing can begin. But the moment that we just keep on going and we try and become the judge and we kind of justify it or ignore it or cover it up or push it down or the damage continues and it grows and it grows and it grows and what God does is that he doesn't have to create a punishment that's wor- that, that is worse than that reality, the reality that we've already created for ourselves. What God does is that he hands us over to our own cruel judgments. And that's what Nathan does with David. David's Nathan is going to say, David, the judgment that you were so willing to give this rich man, since you are the rich man, that will be your judgment. So David is going to lose wives. The 12 12 women that he's currently married to, some will leave him, and they'll leave him in spectacular and public ways and embarrass him. And it will happen again and again and again, and David will be humiliated. And this is David's own brand of justice. And the death sentence that David wanted to pass on to the rich man will actually fall onto his own family. David's death sentence will fall onto his own child that he will have with Bathsheba, their little baby boy who will be born, will suffer the consequences of David's own condemnation and sentence of death and that baby boy becomes sick and tragically this innocent little child dies Nathan's statement is this that the sword will never depart from your house David and endless wars will start because of David's mistakes his kids are going to hate him the, the army will despise him in fact a portion of the army will will leave Uh, and follow David's son Absalom, and there will be civil war for 14 years in David's own household. And David is hearing all of this from Nathan, and it's breaking his heart. In fact, 
David breaks under his own judgment. And this is where David does something that we have not seen in Israel's history and will rarely see again in Israel's history. And it's this, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, David is confessing. He says more here to Nathan that's not recorded. In fact, we're going to read over and over again in the Psalms the depths of David's confession. It's kept short here for I don't know why, but David gets the point home. I've sinned against the Lord. David recognizes that his blindness against God's goodness, his rejection of following God's commands to honor and love his neighbor and friend, those are all mistakes that he has to own. David recognizes that his murder and his adultery is wrong, and he confesses it. If you read in the Psalms, it won't take you long to catch a glimpse of how David digested his immense failures and Nathan's confrontation, how David is quick to confess his sins. Psalm 51.3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Psalm 38.4, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. But the biggest evidence that David understands how important confession is, is that he allows this whole story to be written. We're given an inside glimpse in between confrontations between Nathan the prophet and, and, and David himself, and only David would have known the details of all of this story. And David commissions a scribe to write the whole thing down and to make it public in Israel and in the world for all of history. Why? Because David begins to understand that confession is the start to healing and to hope. Confession is the practice through which God brings dead hearts back to life. Confession is the practice through which Jesus repairs your marriage. Confession is the practice through which your, the, your eyesight of your heart is restored, where as you confess, you will begin to see God's goodness and faithfulness and love all around you. And the more people that you tell your failures to, the less power it will have in your life. See, confession isn't just speaking out loud what you've done wrong. It's also simultaneously a prayer. It's saying, God, I've failed, I, I've rebelled, and you're specific about it. So just as a surgeon is specific about what infection he cuts out or what broken piece he repairs and stitches back together, the specificity of your confession brings healing to your heart. And confession opens the way to ask forgiveness. Confession is, is like cleaning, the, uh, cleaning a wound, right? You would never just clean half of the infection out of a wound. Or if you fell down and skinned up your arms, you wouldn't just pick out half the rocks, would you? No, you'd clean it all out. And this is confession. When we confess, all of the infection goes away so that you and I might be healed. Now, the deeper the wound, the more help that you need. Certainly, you confess, confess your sins to God in prayer privately. Please do that. Start with that. Always that. But the deeper the wound, 
the deeper the wounding in your own heart, the longer that you've been at this particular version of your sin, you're going to need more help. And when you confess in the presence of another person, what you do is that you take yourself out of the position of being judge. When you confess your sins in the presence of someone you trust, the cycle of sin and rebellion can be broken because now you have accountability. Now you have more sets of eyes looking onto your life and you've invited friends and spouses and your friends and your spouse, hopefully you just have one spouse, your friends and your spouse to be your own Nathan who will come to you and say, hey, sweetheart, you're doing it again so that you can stop. See, when you confess, you're giving the Holy Spirit permission to work on that part of your life. And the Holy Spirit will start giving you gifts like humility. The Holy Spirit will start taking that callous off of your heart and your tears will come back and your feelings will come back. And yeah, it'll hurt, but that's a symptom of being alive. Now, Pay attention right now to how much resistance there is to confession in your own heart. Pay attention to that. You might think to yourself, I, Andy, I can't, I can't do that. If I were to confess, then, then they would leave me or they would not love me or, or she, she would just think I, I was a you know, bum or, or he, would, he, he would hate me because of what I've done. And I, I want you to know that that resistance, though understandable, is saying, I'd rather live with death than trust that God might heal my heart. There will always be resistance to confession. Why? Because that slippery thing that does not want to be caught and nailed down inside of you called your own rebellion, your own sin, that thing does not want to be gripped by the neck and pushed into the light of day. But when you confess, when you take the risk of saying, no, this is what I've done to another human being, to God himself, what you're doing is that you're grabbing that thing that is killing you called your own sin and you're exposing it to the light. You're saying, Jesus, this is what I've done. This is what I've done. And when you do that, it dies. In the darkness, it grows into a horrible, hideous monster. In the light, it dies. And when we confess our sins, we rest in the deep truth of the good news. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for that one. You see, when we confess our sins, what we're saying is this, I'm David. I deserve to abide and to have my own heart condemned by my own judgments. And I'm David. I despise God's word. I'm blind to God's goodness. And that's why I'm sinning. And as I confess, my, my heavenly father, your heavenly father forgives you and forgives me. Why? Because Jesus is the king who sits on the judgment seat over my life. And how does Jesus judge me? 
Jesus doesn't burn with anger or fury at me or you. Full of love, Jesus says this, yep, you're guilty. But I will suffer the judgment you deserve. See, Jesus isn't interested in our resumes. Jesus is interested in our honesty. He is our great physician. And so when we go to the exam room or to the surgery center or to the ER and we show up in his presence, he's not interested in hearing about all the ways that we're perfectly fine and healthy and good. What he wants is permission. He wants permission to work on the part of our heart and our life and our thinking and our action and our behavior that is all messed up and that is causing all sorts of damage and your choice to be honest, to be vulnerable. It gives him permission to heal that part of your heart. See, brothers and sisters, here, you're not stuck right now with your family in your house, even though it might feel that way. You are not stuck. In fact, you have a purpose right now to change the trajectory of your family from here on out, to demonstrate to your spouse, to your children, to your grandchildren, what it looks like to confess your sins, to apologize, to start the work of repair. You're never going to have this chance again. I doubt there will be a global pandemic where you will be stuck inside of your house for weeks on end again in your lifetime. This is it. Take the moment right now to apologize, to confess. And brothers and sisters, when someone confesses to you, forgive them. For that's what Jesus does when you confess your sins to him. Every sin, every sin, every mistake that you've made, it's already forgiven. It's already been paid for and washed clean by the blood of Jesus on his cross. So confess your sins, for he's faithful and just to forgive you all your unrighteousness and cleanse you and heal you and make you whole. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, would you, would you help us this week to confess our sins? God, thank you for giving us Nathans in our life who have the courage to tell us about what's going on. And God, would you help us to push back against our resistance to defend or to react in a bad way? Would you help us, Lord Jesus, to confess our sins? Jesus, I pray your spirit upon each family here tonight, today that's listening and uh, that is participating. God, would you... Would you bring healing and hope and restoration to them? Would you restore marriages today? Would you mend relationships today? Would you take our broken and weary hearts and make them whole? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance as his delight in you and give you the peace that passes all understanding.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you at the live stream.